Blog Talk Radio. On this Friday afternoon, welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I am so happy you joined me for today's show. Today is, like I said, Friday, February 6, 2015, and we are going to be answering some questions that I've received in the last couple of weeks that I thought were really, really good ones, and I wanted to talk about those, and mostly because they're pretty common scenarios that we face as speech-language pathologists and other early interventionists as we work with toddlers with communication delays and disorders. So let's get right to today's topic, and this is show number 253. I forgot that I was supposed to be saying the title and the number, and that helps lots of you to, (laughs) as you are combing through the archives, deciding if you've heard a show or not. So this one is 253, and the title is Answered Questions About the Onset of Autism and Jargon in Late Talkers. So let's start first with that question about the onset of autism and I'll just read it and then we'll I'll kind of share a story that happened in my practice many years ago that was pretty similar and then we'll talk about my responses to uh, this speech language pathologist and then other recommendations that I can offer her to okay it starts with I am a developmental specialist I evaluated this little boy when he was 14 months old so pretty little, and she said he was moderately delayed in all areas. I noted the lack of pointing, but he was reasonably social. He began to receive services, and we were working on pointing and saying mama, which, of course, that's a fantastic goal because that's the one word all moms of late-talking toddlers are just waiting and waiting and waiting to hear. So fantastic goal. She said then he had some health problems, had several surgeries, and missed many sessions. When I got back to seeing him regularly, he had regressed majorly in his social and communication skills. He would cry and not want to interact with me at all. She said I had to work really hard, in all caps, to get a few minutes of attention and smiles in between periods of crying and sucking on his blanket or being lost in the TV. She said, I brought this to the attention of his service coordinator and suggested uh, psychological and an OT evaluation. The psychological eval has been done, and he was diagnosed with autism at 21 months. She says, I feel very taken aback. I've never witnessed the regression that accompanies the onset of autism like this. What suggestions do you have for me to help him regulate during sessions while we are still waiting for the OT eval? And she says, as an aside, mom tells me that his SLP is trying to get him to use flashcards and then he doesn't like them. And then she wrote, Arr. you know, so she's obviously listened to the show before <laughs> and feels like I do about using activities that children don't like and don't respond to. And certainly with a toddler who's been through so much from this period from 14 months to 21 months. And let me just tell you this story that I want to share too. I had a little guy like this as well. And here's what happened. I saw, and this was, oh, several years ago. He's probably in middle school by now. Um, But I saw him first when he was probably just after 
right before his first birthday and then just after. And his primary concern for his parents at that point was feeding. And he was having just such a difficult time with moving and transitioning to solids. He was fine with purees, and actually he was kind of a big boy, so it was a surprise to me to walk into this time where <laughs> this little guy was, oh, and he was a twin, but they were fraternal twins, and he looked nothing like his smaller <laughs> um, brother. And again, if you saw these two little guys together, you would never, ever, ever know that they were twins or actually even siblings that were just markedly different. But this little guy, again, problems with transitioning to solids, worked on that. And this was, again, years and years and years ago when I still dabbled in feeding. And I, I decided several years after that that I wouldn't even treat feeding anymore because we have so many wonderful speech-language pathologists in our city that specialize in feeding. And we have the opportunity to really refer people to what their niche is. And I think when you live in a community like that, it's fabulous because you get an opportunity as a speech pathologist to practice and, and to do and to treat primarily what you are fantastic at treating and the things you're not so great with, you can certainly hand that off to someone who is. So kids get really, really quality services because people get the opportunity to really specialize and develop their skills. And I know that doesn't happen everywhere. So if you are listening to me talk about that and rolling your eyes right now, that's okay. I get it. <laughs> That may not be the same where you are, and you may have to be more of a generalist and do a little bit of everything, and that's okay because I certainly started my career in that same way. So my little guy, I saw him for feeding, got that under control fairly quickly. He had a fabulous, his parents were just amazing. His mom was a school teacher who stayed home when she had kind of back-to-back -back babies. She had a little boy, and then she had a set of twins, I think within 13 months. I mean, they were really, really close. So she um, decided to say, I'm going to be a mom and not teach anymore. <laughs> and dad was a dentist or a doctor or some other kind of medical professional like that. And so the feeding stuff, they were so committed to therapy. And actually, this little guy, too, had been in physical therapy because he missed some gross motor milestones. So there were some other developmental red flags um, that he demonstrated even before he was one and then kind of started the feeding stuff. But again, mom was so on it and she was so careful to follow recommendations and suggestions. And she did a lot of obtaining information on her own because, you know, she's an educator. And so she just read everything and did everything. And so feeding resolved fairly quickly. And this was a little guy, too, that was like email that I read. He was pretty social at 14, 15 months when I was seeing him. And so occasionally I would have these little glimpses of things so that made me a tad uncomfortable. And then I would think, oh, my goodness, I've not noticed that he's done this or done that or, or just these tiny, tiny little red flags. So when his feeding issues were resolved and I was talking with mom about these little bitty red flags, she immediately went into protection mode as moms, as all of us as moms do. And she said, you know, I'm just not concerned about those things. I believe that children develop at different rates. I know we've had to gross motor delay, and that's kind of done too. So we're just going to be finished with early intervention right now. 
thank you so much. You know, you've done a fabulous job, but I don't want to talk about anything else. And you know what? When a mom is at that point, that's okay because that's her journey. That's her life. That's her decision to make. And so I discharged him and went about my merry way. And then several months later, I got a call back from the same service coordinator who said, hey, we want you to take a look at this little guy again. His mom wants to talk about reentering the program. She's seeing some developmental things that she's not sure what's going on, doesn't know if it's just like talking or whatever. And I went back, and the little guy looked not significantly different because he he had not, again, he was not a child that unless you knew a lot about typical development and he had his real-life brothers right there with him every single day, with another set of parents, he really may have never even been referred. But because these parents were so educated and so on it about everything, they, they were concerned. And his brothers are were and are chatterboxes, and he didn't have any words. And again, this was, he was probably by this time 18, 19 months old. And again, for us in early intervention, that's kind of an early referral, isn't it? But I was happy to get it, and he had declined. And I just, when I read this email from this therapist, certainly the little guy that I'm talking about did not have a significant decline like that. But it is always interesting to me to see a child around that first birthday shortly after and have just a little bit of concerns about them and then things just take a turn for the worst and you see them later, especially in, in the case of the, the therapist whose email we just read, and you just cannot believe the difference. And we always expect children to make progress and gain skills because that's what the maturation process entails. Kids get better. They learn new things. But when you see it happening right before your very eyes, when there's been a little decline where you think, okay, he's in services, how how can this happen? And certainly there were some extraneous things going on. He obviously had some medical issues since he had some surgeries. And let me just say, too, when babies are sick, development sometimes plateaus or what we see happening here with this little guy it totally regresses and it's I just can imagine the angst from um, just reading this from the therapist not only from her but can I just cannot imagine how it must have felt to that mom to see these things and again sometimes you know, I wonder if she noticed the developmental changes that were happening or, or that things were not moving along. And this therapist, even though she recommended that the child get a psychological evaluation, she was still pretty blown away for him to get an autism diagnosis at 21 months. And that, finding a professional who gives the diagnosis before two isn't common in every place in the United States. And you can think about, as you're listening right now, how likely a 21-month-old would be to get that diagnosis where you live. You know, And I'm not sure where this person is from, but certainly there are um, places where the diagnosis uh, professionals are comfortable giving that diagnosis. That's 
early, and I applaud that. And I know some of you, if you're listening, if you're moms, you may say, oh, I would never want my child labeled that early, or I would never want him to get a diagnosis because what if it's wrong? And what about, you know, what will people think about him with that? I don't want him labeled. You know, that's something that moms say all the time. As a therapist, you may also be, especially if you live in a place where diagnoses come later, you also may have a little bit of reluctance to want a child to get diagnosed that early because you feel like there can be incredible changes, especially for the child that's in early intervention and getting services that you can see um, that they're, as long as you're providing treatment, a lot of therapists feel like, why get diagnosed? Why, why, why put that family through that? Let's just get in there and do the right intervention and, and see what happens and see kind of how he looks at three. You know, for a mom to have followed up on this and for a child, again, to have had so many complications between 14 months and 21 months, I can imagine that she probably... Um, well, certainly she was okay with, with going ahead with that process because, again, there could be lots of other parents that, that had an opposite reaction. Certainly that family that I was talking about earlier didn't really want to talk about even little red flags that you you might see. So I really applaud that family for going ahead and pursuing that and seeing what they – I'm sorry, I – I forgot to uh, do some things with my phone, so I'm sorry we're getting those beep ins. But back to my point, I really applaud that family's decision to push ahead with um, that procedure so that they can get that assessment and go ahead and get that diagnosis. The positives for that certainly are when we have a name for something, which is what a diagnosis is. It's not just a, well, we think there are these issues. You know, when we have a diagnosis it really or, or label, it really does put some, um, I don't want to say emphasis. That's not the word I'm looking for. What would be a good word for that? It just lets everybody know, hey, this is a big deal, and we need to get on this. And this is not something that's going to go away by itself, not something that we're just going to, you know, wait and see. So, again, I don't know what your personal feelings are on that, but I certainly applaud this family's decision. And, of course, they're they're a really with it kind of family, as the family was that I mentioned earlier, that, I, that little guy that I had on my caseload, because to get a child in early intervention under a year or right over a year is, is Amazing, because we know that a kid's best chance at being able to attain whatever his highest possible level of achievement would be is certainly going to be better than if parents had done nothing at all. And that's something I talk about with parents. Certainly people that email me through uh, teach me to talk and they'll say, you know, I don't really want to, I, I don't want to do this therapy if it's unnecessary. I just don't want to have to do it if it's something that I can just wait and see if that's going to get better. And let me just say, if you're a mom listening to this, don't do that. Go ahead and proceed with what your gut feeling is telling you to do. And, again, it may not be get um, jump into therapy, you know, several appointments a week and, 
and just a big comprehensive kind of program, it may not be that. It may mean, though, that you are going to do everything in your power as a mom to go ahead and provide that intervention now. And if you do feel like, man, I have tried a lot of this stuff at home and it's just not getting any better, or even if you're already in therapy and you're feeling like, gosh, I just really had hopes for moving along a little better, you know, whatever your 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 feeling about your particular child happens to be, it's always, always, always better to do something rather than do nothing. A lot of moms talk to me, especially, you know, now in my private practice, I get to see kids from all over the United States. And a lot of times they'll say, my worst regret in all of this is that I didn't do something sooner because I knew in my heart you know, when you had that gut check feeling, I knew that something wasn't developing as it should be. I recognized these things, you know, and it could be that everybody in that mom's life told her she was crazy or, you know, just to wait or kids develop at different paces or, you know, all these things that people say to parents <laughs> of children who are, are not developing as, as we would all hope. You know, one of the things that I hear over and over and over again is I wish I had not waited. I wish I had not put it off. I wish I would have gone to see a different doctor. I wish I would have talked with someone else. I wish I could have convinced my husband that, yeah, we're going to move ahead with this now. You know, they, they feel so guilty because they didn't move ahead with that. So if you're in that situation and you're listening to this show as part of getting yourself um, some additional strategies and, and getting yourself some knowledge, good for you. You are doing something. But again, anytime you feel like, gosh, I need somebody else to take a look at this, it's going to make you feel better and you will not regret. You won't have that extra layer of guilt with, man, for six months I just wrung my hands and I didn't do anything else. So I just wanted to put that out there. But back to our email. Certainly, the mom and the dad in this situation were on it and got their little guy referred and he was working with a developmental therapist and a speech pathologist and then now he's gotten the autism diagnosis and he's about to get an OT. So I told this therapist in my response that I've had that unfortunate experience too. I've had some other kids too that um, maybe I saw them early on but I wasn't their treating therapist and then for whatever reason, that family kind of cycled back into my practice. And, it, it, you know, it's always, always unsettling when we don't see a child move forward like we think that they would. But here's kind of the silver lining that we always need to look for. And this is what I told her. I said, we have to just regroup and you have to look at what, that little guy, she said, remember at the beginning, she said that she made some progress at the beginning and he was reasonably social. And so my recommendation to her was to think back, look at your notes, talk with mom, do everything that you can to remember what that little guy liked before and what worked before. You know, and the the good news is, too, that she has the benefit of knowing this guy for a long time, too, and for figuring out, again, what his strengths were and what kind of made him tick before he had these medical setbacks and certainly before this full onset. 
And so that's that's what I think she should do. And I think she should kind of look at it as um, a positive that she sort of, that not sort of, that she saw him early enough to have developed a pretty good relationship with him kind of before things took a turn for the worst. So she has that history to build on, and she's able to pull from that prior knowledge and and even things like personality. And, you know, she said that recent sessions have been really, really hard just to get a few minutes of attention or smiles. That's okay. You just have to know that you're just going to have to double down. (laughs) And, again, remember what he liked before and remember all your prior prior knowledge of he likes this kind of game or he likes this kind of toy or whatever so that that she can really come up with things will work better than just trying um whatever she would try without that prior knowledge of him. So, and I also told her, you know, it is, it's going to be harder now. It, it will. It's unfortunate that that happened, but she really is just going to have to buckle down and know that he is, um, it's, it's going to be a longer haul. I also really encouraged her to back up to social games and just really focus on building that interaction piece and that back and forth turn taking and really do everything you can to keep it fun and exciting so that she'll have all of that to build on. A lot of times they're little guys too, especially these little guys even before they're two, they have a really hard time exhibiting any kind of joint attention once we bring a toy in. And and that's the nature of autism, that joint attention is really, really difficult for these little guys. So for a lot of times for them, and especially for these kids, especially the ones, the, the younger they are, the more this, it's always, nearly always true, but it seems to be more so particularly the younger the, the child is. And we have to know, too, let's just kind of say what's an obvious. For him to get a diagnosis of autism at 21 months, it's probably pretty severe or pretty significant again for a professional to kind of put it out there and say you know we're not going to look after he's two or two and a half or after six months in treatment you know he he got the diagnosis so there has to there has to be some pretty big diagnostic markers there and again that makes it harder the more significantly challenged a child's attention skills are or interaction skills certainly joint attention with autism the more that we know um, it's going to be harder so my point was, when when you're trying to teach a child to share attention, sometimes and, and to really like you and want to interact with you, and, and even to a degree, you know, you're talking with moms and dads about this as well, you may not get to use those toys at first because it's just too hard. It's too hard for them to shift their attention between the toy and you. So social games are always a great, great, great place to start, but... For little guys who cry a lot and for who interaction is really, really not fun, you may have to, again, do everything in your power to make it where it is fun, but you may have to do some things, too, that are a little bit unconventional. For those children, if he has a self-stimulatory toy, a STEMI toy, if he has those kinds of interests, you may have to work yourself into part of that so that you are the holder of all good things. <laughs> and if he likes a spinny light toy, then you make yourself part of that. 
so that he doesn't really have the spinning light toy by himself. He only really gets it when he's with you or mom or dad or somehow, some way, so that that becomes interactive for him. And some therapists really shy away from that, and they say, oh, my goodness, I don't want to use that with him. I'm not going to do anything that's going to set off a stem. Guys, sometimes that's all you have at the beginning. That's your that's your most logical kind of place to start because that's what the child really, really, really is into. That's what he really likes. But, again, you have to pair yourself with it. You can't just say you're doing therapy if you give them something that's a self-stimulatory toy and let them go off and do their own thing with it. And then, you know, maybe, maybe drop it after 20 minutes. That That's not going to work. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, again, really pairing yourself with what that kid likes or with a general um, kind of similar stimulation. So if it's a kid who likes a lot of television because there's a lot of music on the show, then what are some things you could do? You could sing. You could sing those songs that he likes so much in that show to kind of build that association there, to make yourself as much like what you know he enjoys as possible. If you have a kid who, you know, and I've done this a lot, if I if mom says, gosh, this the only my kid likes a lot of shows, but the one he really reacts to is like Jake and the Neverland Pirates. Well, for a kid like that, I would learn the Jake song. If I thought I was going to be able to start to use some toys as my end with him, I would get the Jake pirate ship and the Jake characters. You know, anything that a mom is giving you, any information that she is sharing. You know, how many of us have kids who have been just really. Um, Obsessed with Thomas, you know, then you know, hey, I can play with these trains, but I have to totally join myself with the trains so that I am as much a part of this activity as just him loving the trains. He can't just, you know, lay on his stomach on the floor and watch the wheel spin. <laughs> you've got to be part of that. So you've got to get yourself in there and make yourself a part of that. And it doesn't always mean withholding, like I'm just going to hold back and not give you Thomas until you sign or say train. For most of our little guys, they are nowhere near that. That is not even kind of a starting place. But it could just be getting him to um, hold his hand out when you want to give it to him. It could just be that he makes eye contact and smiles while you're playing with that, while you, you know, roll Thomas through a big tube and it comes out the other side, you know, like a wrapping paper tube, or whether you, you know, improvise with making some kind of ramp and you guys take turns rolling Thomas down. Or if it's a, a you know, spinny light toy that you pick it up and that he reaches for it and that you show him how to push the button or whatever. And, again, it really, these goals, it, it they're not going to be relevant for every single child. It really is dependent on what the child is doing and what the child likes. But you get my point. You have to pair yourself with that fun, exciting thing that he does love so that you become a part of that as well. So I hope that we're going to hear back from that um, therapist who's working with a little boy. She's a developmental specialist. And I hope that she has some nice things to report and that those recommendations make sense for him and that she's able to really use those and um, get her foot in the door with him again and that they move along and that he 
make some nice, nice progress. All right, let's move on to the second topic today, and I want to be sure that we get to both of these questions since I said that we would. This is kind of a – this is an about face. We're doing a big turn here. We're talking about a totally different situation, so let me just read this to you. She says, I'm an SLP who works with uh, birth to three. And she says her state, but I'm not going to say her state. She says, I love your website and resources. I was wondering if you could give me some guidance and share your expertise. I'm currently working with these two adorable twin girls, almost 20 months or 30 months, so they're two and a half. They have nice attention and play skills. They also have beautiful comprehension skills. They follow verbal directions and answer WH questions. For example, today I asked one of them what's on your sleeve. Without using any cues, she looked down at her sleeve. But in, uh, and, and that's a good thing. And so she's telling me that to establish that, yeah, this is a little girl who understands words. She gets questions uh, like what's on your sleeve. And we all know that not all 30-month-olds who are late talkers would understand that. Our little guys with receptive language delays have a hard time processing, a hard time understanding questions. So they, we may ask some another kid what's on your sleeve, um, and again, a kid with some receptive language or comprehension problems, and he not even realize we ask him a question, much less would know to look down at his sleeve to even if he can't say it, we certainly wouldn't, we would know that he understood the question. So that's what she's doing here is telling me, yeah, their comprehension skills are good. She said, anyway, since I started working with them, they are using more single words and some general phrases such as I do or help me, she said, which helps them get by and get their point across, ha, and she's exactly right about that. She said, but they still are not imitating or it's very unclear when they do. And this is the jargon part. She says they love to tell stories, but it's still all a lot of jargon. For example, one of them was trying to tell me that they went to the beach, but the only intelligible words were mama and dada. She says, yet they're combining some two-word phrases, such as more food or dada hat. And she says, do you have any advice for getting them to copy more consistently? And what about reducing that jargon? Okay, so my response to her was, oh jargon it's tough isn't it isn't it tough if if you don't know what i'm talking about well if you're a speech pathologist you do know what i'm talking about with jargon that's those those long strings of unintelligible utterances you know the kid knows how to talk because he just goes on and on and on and on and on in this case these are little girls but nobody really gets much of what they're saying and let's just talk about that there is a period in normal expressive development where kids do that. Usually it's from the time that they're going from single words to phrases or when they're trying to make that jump from phrases to longer sentences. And again, these are kids who know how to talk. That is not the problem <laughs> because they certainly know how to sequence words. I think that in their little minds they think this is how everybody else talks and my mom talks to me. She just goes on and on and on and on and on. And these are kids who want to do that too. They want to be able to use longer and longer sentences, but their single word vocabulary is just not there yet. Now let me take a side note and say this is not what I, what's going on with these little girls, but a lot of kids who use jargon over the age of two, and again, 
in typical development, this would happen before a child turns two. And certainly these little girls are two and a half. Uh, but, and we're not, and again, this is not applicable to these little girls, most likely, because the speech pathologist has assured us that their comprehension skills are really, really good. But a lot of times kids who use jargon who are over two really have difficulty processing and understanding language. So again, her example of looking at the sleeve when she said, what's on your sleeve, you know, that's a little girl who's not really struggling that much with receptive language. And, and certainly we can trust the therapist's opinion on this. But a lot of times kids will use jargon after the age of two um, because they do know how to talk, but they don't really understand words. And they haven't done a lot of linking meaning with words or what they can say. And again, these little girls are different because here's the kicker. They already have some single words and even some holistic phrases that are emerging. And a lot of times with our little guys, this is how you know if it's, if receptive language is a, a big component, is that the kid would really have no true single words in their vocabulary. So that's kind of how you start to tease that out. And if you have a kid, say, at 30 months, who's exclusively using jargon, but he's also not really interacting one-on-one -on -one with you, meaning that a lot of his jargon is self-directed, meaning that he's not doing what these little girls are, which is trying to communicate, trying to let you know something. And when there are no true single words, and I'll just tell you, with jargon, usually it's at the end. They'll do their da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I can't really... I can't really model that jargon for you. Uh, but they'll do it, and then they'll say, like, mama, or blah, 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 dada. That's, that's kind of, that's how you know that it's, that it's related to language development, and that's typical. And, again, these little girls are lighter talkers. So they're doing that really common jargony stuff at a much later age than we would expect for typically developing kids. But, again, we will see this, and so what do you do about it? And she said there's also some imitation problems, and I think what she's meaning is she can't get direct imitation going, meaning that um, if I say it now, you can't necessarily say it now, but later, after you've kind of had time to pull all that stuff together, you might hear that word. And I forgot about this, the, the speech pathologist said, sent me a follow-up email um, to what I told her, and she said something very similar to this. She said, for example, I took a bunny stuffed animal and made him hop across the room while saying hop. They imitated the hopping action but not the word. But their mom said that after I left, they were producing the word with the action. So, see, they had to have time to kind of process it and own it. <laughs> and really kind of get revved up enough to say it. They couldn't do it there in the moment, but they were able to do it later. And, guys, with kids like that, don't worry about it. You know that it's what you're doing is working. It's okay if there's that lag time. With you, you're not going to hear a new word the day that you really focus on it and teach it. The child is going to need some time for whatever reason to be able to pull it together and then use the word later. And so as long as you are hearing those words, not on the day or the session or two that you teach it in, but th that those words show up in their vocabularies. Mom said, you know, it was later that day. You're on the right track. You're doing the right thing. You just know that there's some lag time there and from the time they hear it until their time, the time that they're able to produce it on, on their own. And, and that's okay. You just keep going with what you're doing. All right. So let's back up and talk about some other things that I told her. 
um, I told her they are hearing everyone else talking long sentences and they want to do that too, which we've talked about. Because a lot of times when kids understand a lot and they know that they can talk, they do want to just talk beyond their capabilities. And that certainly seems to be what's happening here. And I also told her this is what I always do with kids like this, especially ones who are really, really directing their jargon to you. I mean, they are on purpose telling you something. It's not like the kids who just walk around the house and doing their jargon, you know, for their own benefit. These are kids who are looking right in your face. And, again, they expect you to know what they're talking about. When you figure it out, when you know what the heck they're trying to say, just pull out one word and model that and then wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for them to try to imitate you. So she said before that they were telling her a story about the beach, but all that she could understand was mama. I probably would say, oh, mama, mama. Oh, you went with mama. And really emphasize that word that I heard, that I knew what it was, and maybe even ask some questions back. You know, where did you go, Mama? What? You and Mama? And again, you're really emphasizing that. Your single word there that you're kind of going for that you know that they can say that you would like for them to begin to produce an imitation is Mama. So you do that. Or you might even just say, oh, Mama, and just kind of sit there and see what happens after that. And again, it's really important that kids learn how to imitate and they learn um, they exhibit that skill. And, again, we want it to be right there in the moment so we know that they have it. But it's okay if it's later, especially the earlier you kind of are in the therapy process, um, the earlier sessions. And you just kind of let them know that it's okay, that it's okay for them to be able to talk in single words and you get that or those short phrases. So if mom were there talking about the and mom if, if mom were there and she figured out, oh, they're trying to tell you about the beach, that's what I would say. Oh, beach. You went to the beach. Tell me about the beach. Let's talk about the beach. Beach. And just let them kind of know you're reinforcing you're you're saying that target word over and over and over. If beach was too hard, go for water. You know, did you see water? Water. Oh, water. Let's talk about the water. And again, you're pausing in there more than I'm doing now and just telling you what I would say. You've got to really put some pauses in there, that wait, 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 wait piece so that a kid can jump in and, again, try to imitate you or to expand what you said. So that's something that really works. The other thing, if they really can't imitate single words yet, back up and have them imitate easier targets. And we certainly have spent a lot of time over the years talking about what those would be. But what I'm really meaning are play sounds, so like noises, animal sounds, you know, a baby crying, like an eating sound, or what num 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 num, whatever word you use for that. Back up and see if they can do some of those early vocal play um, words in imitation, because those are easier and they're a lot of fun. And so a lot of times kids will want to, or or kind of, the wrong word. 
kids will more easily be able to imitate in those contexts than in real single words. The other things you might do since they're doing some holistic phrases are do a lot of verbal routines. And what I mean by verbal routines are when you say the same things at the same time with the same toy or activity, when you use the same set of words over and over and over again. So in a song, you know, we do that when we're singing songs. Or if you're making up a little verbal routine that goes with something that you're playing, you know, I always give the example of playing in the sandbox. Instead of saying to a kid, oh, I like the way you're digging the sand with your shovel, you would say, dig, 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 dump, dig, 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 dump. Usually kids like this, kids that do have some single words, and kids who are really having a hard time with that imitation piece, but they've managed to kind of learn and hold on to some holistic phrases, they respond beautifully to verbal routines. So pay attention to how you set up those little things, those cute little things you say as you play, and be sure you're being really, really repetitive and see if they don't start to pick some of that up. Um, my book, Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers, will walk you through that whole process, and you get some nice charts and some great examples and some lists that you can share with parents, too. So verbal routines is certainly something um, that I would think about and really, really build some sessions around, and more importantly, teach mom about that, especially if it seems like based on what you've done in sessions with them, um, that, that that would be effective. So you're really going to want to talk to moms about with that mom about how she could incorporate some verbal routines in their in the things that they do every day, like bath time and like meals and snacks and all of that stuff too. One other thing that I ask her about, and this is really, really important, when we are looking at children who seem to have a handful of single words yet we want them to move on to phrases because they've done a couple of little phrases and so we just start you know, think, well they're ready. Kids really need a solid single word vocabulary. So I asked her if they were using at least 50 single words. And some experts will say between 35 and 50 single words is when you start to really hear combinations in typically developing toddlers. But more often than not for late talkers, they need about 50 words before we start to hear consistent short phrases that they use spontaneously. And so... Um, that's certainly something you're going to want to do. So if they don't have 50 words, you don't really worry about those combinations yet and those phrases yet. You work on shoring up their vocabulary. So what you do for that is you just keep a little list, keep a word journal. We've talked about that a lot on this show. Have mom do it. It's what they do say spontaneously. And then analyze it. You're doing a little language sample. And you look and you say, well, does she not use very many action words? Well, boy, I better teach some action words. I better learn some verbs. Or does she not have any prepositions? Those location words, in, out, on, off, up, down. Does she say any of those? And so then you come up with some really good language targets. So then your goal isn't just that she'll talk. You're going to be really specific about teaching her new words so that she has more of a, she has a bigger base to be able to build some phrases with. So I asked her about that and gave her the link for this fantastic post, it's called Making the Leap from Words to Phrases, Tips for Helping Your Toddler Learn to Say Phrases, and you can search that at Teach Me to Talk. I'll try to also put the link uh, to that post under the article at Teach Me to Talk about today's podcast. So um, that's certainly something that I suggested too, and there are a lot of good tips in there 
most of which uh, I, I were going through responses to this question. And then she emailed me back and she said they do have about 40 to 50 spontaneous words and they do combine some words to make some more traditional phrases some traditional phrases, but uh, when I followed up, I said, you know, just keep looking at that. If, if they're saying more hat, then for those kinds of kids, you know, that they've got more in combination with something else, I would just try to pair, you know, a whole session work on saying more with whatever we're playing with. If we're playing with cars and trucks, we would say more car, more train, more boat, more truck, you know, whatever we're using. If we're playing with babies, you know, it would be you know, whatever. And again, look for some non-traditional combinations. So you might put more with a verb. So you would say, you know, more brush if you were brushing her hair or more eat, more eat if you're feeding the baby. You don't always have to make it sound so adult-like either because certainly toddlers, when they first begin to use phrases, can use some combinations that you really wouldn't use as an adult, but that's okay. They're learning. You know, even if the baby, if you were playing a game and making the baby, you know, climb up the the chair of the, the you know, the leg of the chair, and you were saying up, 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 I might have them say more up, more up, more up, because, again, you know they can pair more with another word. So that's certainly something you can do. That's called using your um, anchor words. So more is your anchor word there. You know that they can say it. So that's, that's a way to get it. One other thing that I recommended when I responded to her, too, was to do some holistic phrases. Like, I got it, I did it, where'd it go, I see it, I want it, give me that. You know, anything that would be repetitive like that um, might be an easier way for children who are in that situation to, to make that leap to phrases. But you can find out those other tips by taking a look at that post. Now, if you're a therapist and need more directions about that, let me direct you to my book, Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual. Uh, it outlines how to get to phrases kind of in a step-by-step process and gives you many, 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 many fantastic ideas that we're not going to have a chance to talk about today. All right, we're going to cut today's show a little bit short. It's been about 45 minutes, so if you were basing your hour-long exercise routine on this podcast, you still have 15 minutes to go, <laughs> but we are finished with today's show Join me next week. Not sure what the topic is. If you want to send me a question for me to take a stab at, I would absolutely love that. Thanks so much and have a fantastic week. Bye-bye.